Welcome to Just a Phase, episode 22, The Infertility Industrial Complex. Today we talk with a mom about her experiences dealing with infertility. Plus, uh, you'll get to hear about Drew introducing his daughter to the world of protest chants and Whitney's encounter with Blizzard Fleece. Hi, I'm Whitney Crispell. I'm mom to two girls, ages two and a half and nine months. And my name is Drew Ludwig, and I am father to three daughters, ages 10, 7, and 5. And we might swear, so you're warned. <laughs> How are you, Drew? I am doing well. Uh, I had a ton of fun last night because you organized a big rally, and I got to be a part of that. So, Yeah, should we give some context? Let's do that. Okay, so I think actually we've talked in the past about this terrible school board member. Um, but we have a terrible school board member in Buffalo. Um, his name is Carl Palladino. He ran for governor. Uh, he's a local developer and he is the current co-chairman of the New York state Trump campaign. Yes. Yeah. And he's just a, a racist, misogynistic, uh, hothead. To put it simply. Yeah. But for people that haven't followed, like, are you just making these charges without any evidence? I mean, just be reasonable here. Right. Well, so I'll, so recently, this is, and this is why we came out, um, in, in light of Trump's comments um, from that Access Hollywood tape that I'm sure everybody listening has heard about, um, where he bragged about uh, grabbing women by their genitals be, and getting away with it because he's a star. Um, among other awful things, uh, Peldino, you know, rushed to his defense and said that it was something that all normal, all men do, at least all normal men. Right. And also said that most American people don't care about it. Um, so we organized a, a, a rally, a protest at the school board meeting, uh, last night, which was the first meeting, uh, you know, public meeting after he made those comments. And, uh, yeah, we had like 50 people come out. Drew and I both spoke. Drew brought his daughter. I did. Um, how, how, what did she think? Uh, so it's, I don't know. It, it's an interesting exercise, like explaining to a five-year-old what a protest is or yeah. what a rally is. Yeah. So it was, you know, somebody uh, said some really bad things, and we're going to show up to let them know that we're upset so that other people don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's what we were doing in five year old terms. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of why are we walking around? Why are we <laughs> shouting? Right. Which I mean, I've asked in my own head before, but that's I was like, this is what we do. Right. right? Uh, and uh, and then we uh, so we, we went to it and we, we went uh, to the rally and. Uh, she was able to participate, and she had, likes making noise, so she was shouting along and chanting along. And uh, this morning, I discovered that she was still chanting. So uh, she woke up chanting uh, "racist, san- sexist, anti-gay." Carl, or yeah, Carl pa- or Paladino, go away. We got to leave Carl yeah. out for that. Yeah, yeah. Paladino, go away. Racist, sexist, anti-gay. Yes. So <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I'm not sure. She, I'm pretty sure she doesn't know the definition of all those words, but it's it's in her head. Love it. Yeah. And Love it. We'll see if she starts leading chants at school. My wife told me I have to field those phone calls. 
Yeah. No, I, I love it. She was into the sign, too. I noticed that. She, she was, did like she, the sign. She liked the sign. The fact that there were stickers being passed out. Right. So. Right. If you want to raise your kid to be a radical, use stickers. Uh, this reminds me, a couple years ago in uh, my neighborhood, there were a series of um, rapes and, and sexual assault attacks on women. Um, and we, I organized a, a Take Back the Night March and Speak Out. And my nephew came, who at the time was five. And for like a week afterwards, my sister-in-law said he kept chanting, Yes means yes, and no means no. And this is one of my prouder aunt moments. It's like, yes. <laughs> very, Let's very drill good. drill that consent into his head. So. Yeah. No, yeah. actually, at dinner time after the rally, we got to teach all of my girls a little bit about consent and what that means. And That's great. Reinforce that. Yes. Oh, so on much, a uh, much lighter note... Well, before we go oh, on a letter, okay. I mean, do you want to talk? I talked from my perspective, but like, how did you feel about the, the event? You did all the work. Uh, I felt great. You know, I felt um, in terms of being a parent, you know, I spent most of yesterday, the, the rally was at five and I spent most of yesterday making signs, phone calls, making stickers. And uh, Viv was you know, sort of aware of what was going on. She obviously didn't understand it. She's only two and a half. She didn't mm -hmm. understand the context, but it felt good to just Did you be do doing all of something. those stickers? I did. It and many of those signs? All, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was the slacker that showed up <laughs> without a sign. Well, I, and I've been that person too, so I just wanted to make sure that we were covered. Yeah, I made about like, I think I made like 12 signs and then about 200 stickers. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so Viv watched me do that all, and uh, that felt really good to have her see me. And it also, I think it's just, you know, I think a lot of us are probably just feeling really frustrated and helpless, and it was just a good reminder that that taking action is just so good for your soul and your spirit right. when you're feeling that way. And Yeah, I did have a conversation with my spouse, uh, who is very encouraging and, you know, thoughtful and, you know, she's on on the side of right, but she's like, well, you don't think Paladino's going to quit, do you? And I said, no, I really doubt it. Like, that's not his nature. And it was like, so, you know, what are, what are you guys trying for then? Uh, and I had to think about it, but I think it's a little bit of like, all of the next Paladinos and all of the right. folks that would go with that, you know, like you're going to think twice because it's, we're not going to let it work. Well, and also he has people that there, he has colleagues on the board that need to form partnerships and work with him. Maybe they can think twice about doing that. Right. Um, and they can put that puts pressure on their relationships. So right. it's not just about him. And it also sends a message to the larger community that's offended by him that like, yeah, you're, you're, you're not alone. Like we all think he's, or many of us think he's a jerk. Uh, all of us normal people think he's a jerk. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> okay, but there was something else that you wanted to... I, I just wanted to push yeah, deeper, no, so we got no, to hear no. your side. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I mean, really, the the rally felt like uh, this podcast in that, like, <laughs> Whitney does, like, a whole lot of hard work. <laughs> she writes out good talking points. She makes everything happen. Drew and then gets I to talk. And I show up and play. I do yeah. what's fun for me, so... And I'll, I'm going to post a picture on our Instagram of, of the two of us there, podcast hosts, Moonlighting as protesters. That's right. Um, or are we protesters that Moonlight is 
podcast hosts. Yeah, let's do that one. I mean, both are yeah. unpaid gigs. <laughs> So true. far, yeah, no, <laughs> sponsor us <true>. today. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So my my much lighter uh, update yes. is that I recently had the experience in between our the last two times we talked. Um, I recently had the experience of seeing my children see me get checked out by paramedics. <laughs> so like checked out like. Not like, hey, but like, <laughs> right. are you healthy? Like, are you are okay? Are you okay, ma'am? Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So what happened is I went to Joanne Fabrics with my mom and the girls to pick out fabric for Halloween costumes that my mom's making them. And they have the, this stuff, I'm sure many people have seen it, called blizzard fleece. It's just, it's like... Fleece, it's fleece and they and the bolts of fabric that have the fleece in them are really big because the fleece is thick. So they're pretty big bolts of fabric and they have them like all over the store and long story short my mom and I were like trying to get one of them down to look at it and and two of them fell off the top shelf and hit me on the head. Oh, my. And it hurt a lot. My mom laughed at me. Uh-huh. And I was like, actually, Mom, that really, my head really hurts. And Are you sure you want to talk about this on the podcast? Yeah. I mean, I assume there's a lawsuit pending. No, there's not. And so we, walked, so we walked around the store, you know, for a couple more minutes picking stuff out. And I just started to feel, like, progressively dizzier and, like, kind of out of it. So we got, by the time we got to the cashier, you know, my mom, I think was having some guilt about laughing at me. (laughs) And so she was like, told the cashier, she's like, fabric fell on her head and she's very dizzy right now. And I, we don't think she can drive our children home. And, uh, and the cashier like, you know, came, you know, immediately jumped into this. My father's a paramedic. I'm calling them. You need to get checked out for a concussion. Wow. So the ambulance came. And because it was like the suburbs, although maybe this would happen in Buffalo too, but I like to think that they have less going on. A big fire truck came and about 15 paramedics, firefighters, volunteer fighters came into the front of Joanne Fabrics Wow! and checked me out. And I'm, I'm okay. I don't, I don't think I had a concussion. I definitely was a little out of it and dizzy for the rest of the night and had a big headache. But the girls were super great, um, handled it really well. They both got uh, stuffed animals from the firefighters, little fire puppies. But for the rest of the week, Viv just kept talking about the firefighters and remember the fabric hit you on the head? Yes, (laughs) but it was quite the experience. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, the one of the ongoing themes is Drew traveling with his children. Yes. And uh, this past weekend... Not only did I travel with my children, but I went Buffalo to Pittsburgh with two kids and no spouse and back all in one day. Ugh. But it was, was so it much awesome? better. It was pretty good. Good. I, yeah. I'm not Old, sure I would say it's awesome. No, the younger two. Okay. But really, like, two is better than three regardless of which two. Yeah. So that's constant podcasting advice. Odd numbers of kids are bad. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's true though. No, I you don't see need it. a swing it's boat. Like, yeah, and you know they get the two can play together, and there's not one person that's like. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I had to woke up early, went to Pittsburgh. Uh, my friend and his kid got baptized, and then uh, and my kids were with their grandma during all that. So 
then I met up with the kids and my mom and we ate dinner and drove back home. Any, besides just having two kids in even number, any other things that made the trip worthwhile, like work well, you think? Yes, there was one thing, but it's going to be my thing for the person, oh, place, okay. and thing. So. so stay tuned. Yes. Okay. Okay, let's get to today's interview. Uh, we talk with Anna Falikoff, who is a friend of ours, um, about her experience dealing with infertility. Uh, it's an incredible interview. Anna's, I think, really brave and vulnerable and just a total rock star for sitting down with me and talking about it. Yes. So let's get to it. All right. Today I am joined by my friend, Anna Falikoff. We are going to be talking about fertility and infertility and everything that goes along with that. So welcome to the podcast, Anna, and thanks for talking with us. Thanks, Whitney. All right. So Anna, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? So, um, well, yesterday I turned 36. I am 36. I live in Buffalo. My husband is Aaron Bartley, and we have a six-month-old son named Solomon Falikov Bartley. And talk to us a little bit about your experience with fertility. So the story for me really begins almost eight years ago. It's, it's odd. It's both a personal story and a story of my family, meaning my family I grew up in. Um, I am the youngest of three sisters, and about eight years ago, my oldest sister asked if I would be an egg donor um, because she and her husband were having difficulty having children. So um, after some sort of soul-searching on my part, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was an easy decision, I agreed, and I did it, and that involved some sort of medical intervention, to say the least. Um, and uh, my sister was able to have two children uh, using my eggs. So it was really kind of awesome and an amazing feat of technology. Uh, was it, can I ask, is it, mm -hmm. was it just like one medical procedure on your end that got those two eggs? Yes. Okay. Yep. I mean, I had to take various hormones and go through a small surgical procedure, and they extracted a number of eggs and fertilized them and froze them. And of that batch, so to speak, uh, my nephew, Elon, and my niece, Avital, were born, not at the same time. Uh, Strangely, and so miraculously, my sister then became pregnant on her own uh, with a third child, little Noah, who's four. It's um, wild. So, yeah, she's got a family, you know, of three kids, and two of which are genetically partially mine. Um, but, you know, we don't think about it that often. It's just what happened. And um, so I started thinking about I started sort of entering the world of fertility and infertility, and I think I mentioned to you when an email, like in the infertility industrial complex, I entered it <laughs> about eight years ago, um, and thinking, at the time I was 27 and not ready to have kids, um, but then several years later when I was ready to have kids, or I should say Aaron and I were ready to have kids, uh, we found ourselves in an odd situation, which is that we were having trouble, and uh, maybe we tried a year and a half, just a natural. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't 
working and long story short, we ended up in the same medical office that I had been in eight years before. Oh, wow. Um, and it was just a very odd sort of uh, turn of events. And uh, I learned a lot through it and I suffered a lot through it. And that's why I wanted to share my experience. Mm -hmm. So you had also mentioned when we were chatting that you wanted to maybe give a little bit of a disclaimer. So before I go ahead and ask you some more specific questions, maybe you can can share that yeah, disclaimer. Yeah, no, thanks for reminding yeah. me. So, I mean, when my husband and I were going through the our own struggle, it was hard to hear other people's stories sometimes, particularly those that turned out well, and that sounds like petty and mean, but, it, it you know, you just felt jealous and... Mm -hmm. Um, resentful or would compare one situation to another and and so I when I first had the uh, spoke to you about coming on to talk about fertility I, I had a second thought and I thought well I'm not sure I would want to hear my story now that I have a child if I were listening a year ago mm -hmm. um, or a little over a year ago <clears throat> before I was it before I was pregnant so you know if you, anyone listening is going through a fertility struggle, you know, I, I was successful. We have a baby, and so that might feel, um, you might feel jealous or resentful, and that's just fine. And uh, you get it. I get it, and you can turn it off right now, you know? <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but maybe there's also something to be learned, because... I also felt that one of the reasons it was so hard to go through the experience is because it's so isolating and it's not spoken about very right. often. And it's a, you know, for many obvious reasons, it's something people don't talk about openly. And um, so you suffer in, alone. Mm -hmm. um, and I did, did want to, in my own small way, try to remedy that by talking about it here. Well, I... I want to come back a little bit later to that piece about, you know, the isolation and suffering alone. But but before we do that, let me just get back to kind of your, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry for lack of a better word, your journey yeah, there. Yeah, sure. But um, so w when you said you were trying for about a year and a half, just trying to get pregnant, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote naturally, like mm -hmm. what was there a point in that? process where you started to think like ah, oh, this isn't working like how did that how did you eventually get to the spot where you realized okay we might need some help yeah well I think the standard like textbook guidelines is that after a year of trying if you don't have success that there might be a medical problem yeah. or there might be a reason to seek intervention and maybe if we were like a little younger I would have let that go longer you know I think conception is like really mysterious and despite our very sophisticated technology and understanding of the process, there are elements we don't understand, mm -hmm. and maybe we could have been a little bit more relaxed about it. Um, and I think to some extent Aaron felt like I was a bit pretty, was pretty, like eager to jump the gun in terms right. of going to the medical establishment, but I felt anxious um, about our ages. And also maybe my experience before with my sister, I'd sort of just seen... It's a, it's a tricky thing. Like, the more you wait, the less your chances go down. I right. mean, the more your chances go down, the less likely you are to get pregnant because of your age. So mm -hmm. I was more likely to have 
get intervention um, than maybe others because of my experience and witnessing my sister. What was that? What was that like to be like trying for a year and a half? And I get, you know, I again, I'm sorry if this is obnoxious to hear, yeah. but I I had an easy time getting pregnant, mm-hmm. and but I even so, I still remember those like few times waiting you know and you're like waiting for the pregnancy test and like to come back and like you're you maybe have a feeling and you don't and you're yeah. taking it and it's negative and it's just this crazy up and down roller coaster of emotions and to be experiencing that for a year and a half uh, must have been really disruptive to your life yeah no it's it's a monthly thing you mm-hmm. know there's no break yeah. unless you choose to take a break and that's been as a lot of couples do and we did you know like let's just not focus on this this month like it's too emotional it's right. too um exciting and disappointing or yes you start to you know think oh do I feel like a little different like oh am I like a little hungrier than usual you know, right like things that now yeah. that I've been pregnant I realized like in the first month like it's absurd you know you, I guess some people are very sensitive but for the most part you don't really feel terribly different right at least I didn't um but you're you know hypersensitive and hopeful and then you get your period and it's really sad yeah so oh yeah no it was, it was very um how did you deal with that were there times where you just sort of retreated and you know I and will tell you I have like a pretty bad memory <laughs> So maybe I'm not the best person for a podcast, but I don't know. I, I must have plowed through it, or I think I. Um, I think sometimes we block things out too. Yeah, to be honest. But I think in general, my like hyper rational intellectual side goes to like problem solving and like learning. You know, I. I mean, I actually had not. Um, known that much about my menstrual cycle or like the way fertility works you know I feel like it's one of the strange things about being female in our culture it's like you can be 34 and not really understand like cervical your cervix Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um so I spent a lot of time reading and like comparing apps on your phone to like track your fertility and if you go into these fertility blogs like it's a whole universe of uh, monitoring and tracking and acronyms and numbers and apps and emoticons and like all these things that people use. I, for the most part, avoided that, that sort of felt like it would not be healthy for me. But um, that was, you know, I probably should have taken a more like spiritual yogic position, but I probably dove into um, like understanding mechanics. Yeah, if that works for you, or yeah, I if don't that, know that works, yeah, but <laughs> right, <that's>, but <laughs> right. It's what I chose to do, probably most for the most part. So you spent about a year and a half doing that, mm-hmm. and then, and then you made the decision to go see what is it a specialist? Like, who, yeah. how does that work? Yeah, um, I chose to visit a fertility specialist, and in Buffalo there is one. <laughs> So wow. that is really an odd thing about our community is that there's, I shouldn't say one, there's one that has this full spectrum, like from start to finish, and meaning diagnosis all the way to the most invasive procedure, which is in vitro fertilization, you know, the most extreme, for lack of a better word. So there's only one office, and that's, um, I think they're called Infer- Infertility and Associates okay. um, on Main Street in Williamsville. So I had actually been there before, like I mentioned, um, 
And I just, just decided to go with the same doctor who I had seen before. And they ran a number of tests and determined that probably it was on Aaron's side, you know, the, particularly since I had proven to at least my biological material had led to children in the past, it was more likely than not to be on Aaron's side. Again, we don't, I don't think we fully understand how this right. works, but it seemed like the most reasonable explanation for why we were unable to get pregnant. And they, you know, did a number of tests and whatnot. Um, so I started going to the office and, and going down that path. Um, and I did not enjoy the fact that I, there was only one option in Buffalo. I mean, it's a tough, it's, I ultimately, I'm grateful to a doctor there, Dr. Adam Griffin, but I had, um, I think the next year was spent basically in conflict with various doctors at that fertility clinic. Um, over, over what, um, for example? I think it's a, they, it's a bit of a monopoly situation there. Right. And so, um, I'd say there's a bit of a lack of, um, bedside manner and respect I mean, it's a strong word but I think it's sort of a probably like a patriarchal environment where women aren't are accustomed to being I don't know, like a more of a passive patient role and the doctors assume that's what women want mm -hmm. but I had at this point become like pretty freaking educated right. on the whole thing so I had opinions and I felt that this was could it be done differently or I resented the fact for instance that the one doctor I saw immediately jumped into IVF, like, this is what you should do. This will be easy. I'll get you pregnant. We can do this. Aaron wasn't even with me in the, at the appointment, and I just felt like it was borderline unethical, like there are things you do before IVF because that is, you know, it has its risks and its expenses. I mean, none of this is covered by not not. I should, some of it is covered, but the most expensive procedures are not covered by yeah, insurance. Yeah, IVF is not covered by not insurance. Covered, not in New York State. It's a whole other discussion. Um, so yeah, the doctor's, uh, office was a sort of a conflicted place for me and a tough one. Uh, actually got, I went to Rochester for a while at the university affiliated practice and mm -hmm. I felt like it might be better and I did learn a lot there. And then you came uh, back to that I practice. I came back in part because the doctor that I ultimately chose had trained in part in Rochester and had a relationship with a doctor I was seeing there. And I liked that relationship, um, and uh, and he sort of I think came out of a different place than the other older doctors in his practice. So were you? So you you did advocate f for yourself and for Aaron to try other things before IVF? Yep. Um, so the standard like protocol is you start with um, what's called IUI intrauterine insemination. It was like basically a turkey baster sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, no. I tried to do things a DIY like myself. Um, I forgot about that. Uh, there's a, f a bit of a funny story. I'll just, no, it's not funny at all. <laughs> Sorry. It's like really <laughs> gallows humor. But um, a midwife that we both utilize, yeah. you know, Christina. I, she's been on the podcast. She's been a guest. Okay, great. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea who she was, but I knew that she had been your midwife, and I wanted a speculum, a plastic oh, speculum, yeah. because I just thought I was yeah. going to, like, do this myself, like, basically with a turkey baster. Yeah. Um, and 
So our friend Sarah Gordon suggested that I ask this woman, yeah. and Christina, who had never seen me before, no clue who I was, packed it up a little speculum in a, in a plastic bag and wrote like, good luck, honey, or something. That sounds uh, so like her. Yeah, and Sarah, Sarah, who worked out in the suburbs, like, went and picked, picked it, it up, up for her. me. And so anyway, I tried a few things on my own, uh, or we tried them on our own, I should say. Um, but then I went to the next sort of uh, lowest intervention procedure, right. which is IUI. Um, and that did not work. I think we did that two or three times. And then the next step was IVF. Okay. Yeah. And I think I was a little more, um, wasn't as conflicted about doing that than maybe others because I had been involved in it before. Um, but it has its, you know, it's a very small percentage of infertile couples use IVF. Um, it's ex expensive. Right. It's, um, so it's really something that only privileged people can access. Mm -hmm. it's, it's resource intensive. And I think there's a little part of the culture that says, like, you need to just accept that you're not going to have children. And, like, you're going to something that's really unnatural and uh, the Catholic church you know like condemns it um and i think there's a general sense that like you it's um maybe not the best thing for you or for the children you know like you you know to read that kids born from ivf have problems that uh, none of which has been proven right but i think it's scary yeah know? that like intense parent guilt that everybody has sounds yeah. like it started even it's like if you're trying if you're dealing with infertility starts yeah, before starts you even there. have a child right in your womb totally um so do, so you felt that you did you feel that like from yourself too like that like, did you have to I felt a little frightened certainly felt frightened about like the effect of the drugs um, and what a child born from IVF would could possibly suffer, you know. However, I, I had the experience of seeing my niece and nephew who were born yeah. from IVF, and they seemed like perfectly delightful, yeah. wonderful children. Um, and I wasn't as frightened about the intervention because I had already taken done basically the the hard part, which mm -hmm. was taking the drugs and gone through the surgery. But the the judgment, and uh -huh. the, did you internalize oh. that too? Um, I I had. I mean, I as I said earlier, um, choosing to go through IVF is very it's resource intensive. It feels. I think the culture says that part of it, partially, like you're being selfish. You know, like they're children who need homes, like. You're going through something unnatural. You're subjecting your body to drugs. Um, and I remembered having a little bit of that judgment um, with my sister, um, who had tried many times. And as a younger sister, years away from having kids, it just seemed like, you know, um, at what point do you call it quits? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear these stories of women there are couples going through eight cycles of IVF um, and becoming obsessed or marriages falling apart or, like, people going bankrupt. And, you know, I and my sister didn't 
wasn't going that down that path that to that extreme, but I did have that a few of those thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I even asked her at one point, I'm reflecting now, that like whether she'd considered adoption. And it's like absolutely the, not a very nice thing to say um, because obviously someone who's infertile has thought about adoption. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Um, it's like you're not saying anything revelatory. Right. Um, so when it was our turn, I had a few of those thoughts, but I also... Um, I think in part because of my experience with my sister, I was just more ready to plunge into it. Yeah. And um, I wasn't as caught up, I think, in feeling guilty or p selfish or privileged. Mm -hmm. um, I just felt like, fuck it. <laughs> was, <do> it. <laughs> how, what was that like for your relationship with your sister? Was she able to like talk to you about things in a way that maybe other people <clears throat> didn't know? They didn't I mean, she to. was very versed in the like the medical world, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think she was very available and helpful to talk about medical stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think we talked too much about sort of like emotional, psychological stuff. But um, you know, she had gone to doctors in New York. She had you know sought the best. In fact, we she had ended up going with doctors in San Diego where we were raised. Um, so when the procedure took place, I actually flew to San Diego um, for like the final retrievals. And mm -hmm. there was actually, a, I'm reflecting on it, a lot of drama in that, that particular day of that surgery that where I, she had, I don't know why the doctors thought this was a good idea, but there was one, there's one final injection you have to take to like release the eggs from your ovaries so that they can be, extracted mm -hmm. and it's a very important drug it's called the trigger drug i don't remember the name of the the drug itself for some reason they thought it was a good idea for my sister to give me this drug and like it's a shot in the butt um and <laughs> so we were like sure but it requires like mixing these two things um and so i she gives me the shot and we go the next day and they do us ultrasound and like the eggs have not been released, like the trigger shot didn't work. And we realized that she had given me the shot incorrectly. Oh. She was anxious or nervous, and she forgot sure. to mix the two things together. So it was this crisis, like all of this work. It was all supposed to culminate on this one day with this one shot, and it was mm. completely devastating. How, the doctors decided, like, well, there's nothing to lose. Like, they were just going to give it to me again to see what would happen. And they basically thought it was not going to work and that like we'd have to start all over again or something. It was so devastating. Um, but somehow it worked. So anyway, so we'd had, got, we'd gone through this. Can I just, this. the obvious question, why would they let some? I don't know, it's what? idiotic. Yeah. Oh my God, just. It's completely stupid. And why no one in my family, including myself, thought like, well, let's have like someone yeah. else do it. Let's let um, the person who's like who maybe has the most emotionally riding on this moment, moment most lose make a like medical decision. Oh my god, your poor sister! I know, it was oh. so devastated. We were all like shocked. Yeah, you know, it was stunning. Yeah, um, and there's nothing in the literature about what to do next because right. it had never happened because no right. one, you know, usually medical professionals give shots <laughs> or like neutral, non-involved parties give shots. Um, so, 
Anyway, so my sister and I had these intense experiences. She was available for me when it was my turn, so to speak, um, to sort of give advice. But, um, you know, I think she was also just rather horrified, <laughs> you know, that it was... She, I had to go through this now. And she didn't articulate this to me, but I could feel the tension sure. um, and the discomfort and my brother-in-law also feeling, everyone feeling so badly for me. It was like kind of, you know, a type of pity. And I sort of felt self-pity. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I do this, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, I've done this for my sister and my family. And now, like, my God, it's, how could this have happened? And woe is me and blah, blah, blah. Um, so when I was finally pregnant, it was a huge relief, not only to me and Aaron, but to her. Mm-hmm. You know, not to have to deal with that, I don't know if it was guilt or stress or whatever that emotion is. Um, well, I mean, obviously that situation with your sister is complicated and unusual. Mm-hmm. So I think that's always hard to navigate. But I want to talk to you just in, in general, I guess, about people in your life while you're going through this who knew or didn't know, you know, you mentioned you had a friend who knew that you're going through it enough that she got you the speculum (laughs) when you were doing your (laughs) DIY treatment. Um, but how, how many people, I guess, in your inner circle knew, or how did you tell them? I mean, I tried to be open and forthcoming with friends, um, because, from the beginning, I felt like one of the challenges was secrecy and isolation. Yeah. And, like, the personal, political, whatever. Like, it seemed important to speak openly about the challenges and the suffering we were having. On the other hand, it's a bummer, you know? (laughs) And you don't really want to burden people with the dailiness of it, you know, or the monthliness of it, you know? It's constant. And then with friends with children, it's particularly challenging because you want to experience the joy of children with them and, um, you know, uh, share in the pleasure of their pregnancies and births. But, you know, you've got this weight on your shoulder and it's hard to balance those things. Yeah. It's it's loaded. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like it, you had it, like it was loaded on your end, and then also on their end too? Like, yeah. were you worried that if they knew you were going through this, they were going to be afraid to like share news with you, or mm-hmm. or you know? Yeah, it seems like on both. Like I want I didn't want my friends to act any differently, right? Uh, because they knew I was going through this. Um, but I certainly felt that there were times I acted differently. You know, like. Going mm-hmm. to a birthday party or something and feeling really sad and dejected and um, it's odd. <clears throat> I was thinking the other day about how um, you know they're fundraisers for medical treatments and whatnot, and mm-hmm. I've never heard of a fundraiser for IVF. And it's hmm. and I think it says something about our culture and mm-hmm. like how ones we're not supposed to be public about it um and it's something that's a little bit slightly shameful i mean obviously it has to do with sex so that's like part of it but there's something else too um and i think that's particularly upsetting and that um and when you know insurance doesn't cover yeah 
uh, IVF and it's often the only option someone has if they want to have their own biological children. Um, yeah, you're right. I haven't. I've, I've, I've attended things for friends who were adopting children, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, fundraisers, but I've never, yeah. um, we, I have a family member who went through IVF and, and did end up asking close family members for, for help. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's not, not like super a public publicly. Thing. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think in part that's because you, it's, I was aware that people would judge me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, luckily we didn't need to have a fundraiser. We could afford to do it. But had I needed to, I think I would have been hesitant because of sort of social judgment um, about alternatives, uh, adopting or right. accepting your lot in life and, um, you know, like before technology, there were, of course, families that just didn't have children. And right. They played a role in society, and that was just part of life. Did you also feel like a downside of telling people might be that you you felt like you owed them, like news or mm. non-news? or I don't know. I wonder about yeah, that. Like, that's a good question. Probably. Uh Certainly, I know now I have friends who are looking to have children and having a hard time, and I'm thinking about them and like mm-hmm. curious. And you know, I like watch to see if they're drinking alcohol at I a party. I was just gonna say you know, that I, like I've heard that, yeah. Thing. And you're you know, but you never want to ask, right? Although, I oftentimes I'm now I'm remembering that I, I wanted people to ask me that I hmm. like I didn't, there was never a time when I felt uncomfortable talking about fertility and I felt like it would be more normal if it was like talking about you know how problems at work or right. the way we talk about you know other types of problems in our lives but <clears throat> I also understand that some people might not want to talk about it as freely and mm-hmm. their friends might want might wait for me to bring it up right you know which is so you mentioned the asking you if you thought about adoption as being an obnoxious mm-hmm. thing. Or th- were there other things that people <laughs> said? If um, anyone's listening and, and maybe has a friend that's going through this, like, yeah. What well, are some like no nos? Like, very class, the very commonplace thing is like, well, if you just stopped worrying about it, you would become pregnant. Like everyone has a story about right. some friends. Who were having a hard time having kids? They just signed the adoption papers, and oh my god, they got pregnant! Like I must have heard twenty million of those stories, mm-hmm. um, and it's all very well intentioned, um, but it's really annoying. Yeah. Um, and the, the I may have mentioned. I think I was talking to you before the show about a chapter I read in Naomi Klein's book. This changes everything, mm-hmm. capitalism and the climate. Someone had told me that there, she had a personal chapter in there about her own struggle with fertility. And like she's an, an activist I respect, and so I was interested to read it. And she goes into sort of environmental causes of infertility, which I think is a huge topic and yeah. really important um, because infertility is on the rise, you know, and there's reasons, I think, that... M- that we need to address, obviously, as to why that is. But anyway, she, she goes into sort of our chemical environment and toxins and exposures for young boys and girls. Um, 
it's all very interesting. And then she talks about her own struggles, and she starts to sort of speak dismissively about the medical model of intervention. And I'm starting to get a little like bristles on the back of my neck. And she's like, "Well, I decided to, you know, t do Chinese medicine and acupuncture and herbal treatments." And like, okay, fair enough. Um, and then she decides to leave her stressful urban life and go to her lake house um, to write and really, and I'm sorry, Naomi Klein, if you're listening, this is how I read your book. Yeah. Um, to, you know, like basically decompress and she could just work from, you know, her beautiful office overlooking some lake and I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And did me? she like, get pregnant? Yeah. Uh, of course. I mean, yeah. yes, congratulations. <laughs> I know. It's awesome. But it but, was like, uh, an absurd story of privilege, and um, did you so, like throw the book? Yeah, I the threw room? the book away. I was like, I couldn't believe it. You know, someone who I thought had more of like a class consciousness, yeah, um, writing a story like that just seemed right. particularly infuriating. So yeah, don't suggest that people go um, take a vacation or right. you know find some um, de-stressed environment because you know obviously fertility is it's in its, uh, itself stressful and you know life is mm -hmm. stressful so so you mentioned that people you wouldn't have minded if people asked yeah but anything else that like maybe would be uh, on the helpful end for people to do um I, I don't know I think it's a tough situation yeah I'm I'm on the end now of being a friend and um like I knew a friend I had talked to her several months ago, and she was trying to get pregnant and hadn't heard from her in a while. So I called her just to say hello, and I waited for her to bring up the subject, you know. <clears throat> and I tried not to talk too much about the baby. I think. Yeah. <laughs> when I was, I know, I tried right. to talk to her about my work, about my family. Right. Like my, not my baby family, but my other families. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, because... I was trying to be sensitive to, to her position. Um, but I'm sure she wouldn't want me to hold back too much either because it's obviously a big part of my life is having a baby. Right, right. So... So if someone's listening to this and, and they're going through infertility... Maybe they're just starting this medical intervention in the middle of it. Do you have any advice for them based on your experiences there? Because it <clears> sounds like you were a good advocate for yourself. Yeah. I mean, this is very specific, but like for Buffalo people, I really thought Dr. Adam Griffin was good. <laughs> okay. Mean, sort of we'll put a link to his website there. <laughs> uh, the practice, I wouldn't, unfortunately, I wouldn't go to other doctors in this practice, but who's quite um, compassionate and respectful and... Um, so, yeah, I think finding a doctor that you trust is really important because um, you are in, you know, there's a lot of medical decisions that need to be made. I also would say that in IVF, um, the embryologist is very important. The, okay. doc the doctor is basically establishing your treatment plan and, like, adjusting different hormone levels but the embryologist is in the lab working his or her magic you know in the petri dish and so they're very skilled and they their decisions are very important 
And that actually got me into a big conflict there at the medical office because I wanted to meet the embryologist, and that was apparently not standard. Um, so Dr. Griffin allowed me, I guess, and she was an amazing Canadian woman, and I loved her, and it made me feel really good mm. that she was handling this, the, our potential baby-making material. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so I was really happy about that, but it was like a struggle to, to meet the embryologist. Yeah. So I guess I'd recommend that if you're in that world to feel good about the people that you're working with. Um, and maybe try to actually meet them as people, not just titles people. and yeah. abstract ideas, but yes. get a face and makes what sounds like yeah, a really <sighs> isolating experience, yeah. like a little bit more, more of just a right. and like less um, sterile. And you're talking about babies, you know, like and sometimes <laughs> right. you forget that, honestly, like I became so fixated on being pregnant that I forgot that I was like wanting a baby at the end of the pregnancy like I just really wanted to be pregnant right uh -huh. right so having people who are like there with you and have a sense of humor and who are um, compassionate and um, not jerks I mean honestly I had like a lot of conflict I do think that I was sublimating a lot of my energy into conflict and that's actually a characteristic that I carry from my mother of like feeling like you have to be your own advocate in the medical system or else like you'll get screwed. Mm -hmm. And I, mean, I think there's a certain truth to that and maybe I was a little bit over the top. <laughs> um, but anyway, in the, in the end, I, um, I did find someone that, who was good for us. Mm -hmm. you know? And that was really important. And, and there are support groups. I never went to one, uh, mm -hmm. but I think that could have been helpful, um, particularly if you don't have like a circle of friends that you feel comfortable talking to about the issue. Um, and and I was in a unique situation because I had I was a certain amount of familiarity with the whole thing right. before. If I hadn't had that familiarity, maybe a support group would be better. And from what I understand, support groups like vary between like, did you take fifty milligrams of Falston or? 22 of Lupron, you know, like they can be very like technical, technical or more emotional, and psychologically supportive. And that same group might vary, you mm -hmm. know, on the day. That sounds like it could, you know, it could be good. Are there I, therapists too that may, that specialize <clears throat> in this? I mean, I'm sure there yes, are. Thank you for reminding me. I went to a very good therapist in East Aurora. It oh, took, okay. It took a while to find her, actually. Okay. That was one of the kind of problems I had with the clinic is I really think that the psychological component is as important as anything else. Yeah. And um, like the Rochester clinic, like it's part of your treatment is like your ability to talk to a therapist. And I thought mm. that was so cool. It's like no extra cost. It's just all in like it's part of your. That makes a lot of it's, sense. It makes a lot of sense. And in Buffalo, like they just don't view it that way. And eventually I was able to get a name of a woman. I can't recall it now. Um, <clears throat> through the clinic, but I it was like a struggle to get there. But she was really very good. Um, and then oh, I, I was just thinking about something else. Um, support group, a therapist. Uh, there aren't very many like references in our culture or in literature. You know, it's mm -hmm. odd. Like w where there are childless couples in 
literature, like they tend to be like dysfunctional, like alcoholic, <laughs> destructive. Like it's just sad. Like there's no real prototype. There's of course people who voluntarily choose not to have children. Right. And that's one thing. But people who who yes, did try, try and, and weren't and able to or um, and uh, you know adoption has its. I think a lot of people think adoption is like, uh, well, it's just the obvious alternative, but um, you can fail at that too. You know, like it can cost a lot of money and then you end up with no child or it's, you know, it can get complicated with the legal system. So um, that's a bit of a non sequitur, but just, I think there's just challenges everywhere you turn. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't. I'm sure there's support groups specifically for that as well, and I think some fertility support groups transition into adoption, also. Oh, I, here was what I was going to say. Okay. Which is that I think in larger cities, um, you might have a cohort of a larger cohort of couples going through fertility problems, in part because you have more professional women who delay childbearing. Um, and so it may be easier than in Buffalo, where it's just a smaller city, A, so like the pool is smaller. And I think there just quite aren't that, there isn't as many of those types of people who delay having children mm-hmm. um, and, or, you know, are so, for various reasons, their careers, you know, don't let them. Right. Um, so I don't know what the support world looks like here um but i uh, I know there are some groups so i think i mean i think we could keep talking it seems like there's just layers upon (laughs) layers when it comes to this topic and i'm just so thankful that you are open about this um what you were saying earlier about when we were talking about fundraisers (laughs) uh it, it just made me think about something somewhat related i was talking with a friend about miscarriage and about Mm. how there's no greeting cards for miscarriage and pregnancy loss and um yeah it it's a huge topic yeah there's these big pieces about parenting and and uh and pregnancy and Mm -hmm. trying to become pregnant that are kind of in the shadows and yeah i'm really i'm just so grateful for you talking about it and i think that people will get a lot out of hearing from you hope so and thanks Whitney for having me yeah um I guess I'm like available to talk to anyone who wants to talk about like specific or general okay and we'll I'll get some of the links from this like you know western New York specific yeah resources um but actually yeah let me just is there websites or books that you read that were particularly helpful not the Naomi Klein not that one um I'm actually reading one now uh, again, I think I don't know if it's possible to read while you're in it. Okay, um, but but it's helping you process. It's helping me process, which I you know doing this podcast was really great because I hadn't really sat down and like thought about my experience as a whole until like yesterday <laughs> <laughs> when you said you were coming over at four thirty today. Um, so the book is called The Art of Waiting on Medicine Motherhood. Fertility, mm-hmm. or something like that. I actually heard an interview on on NPR with a woman mm-hmm. who wrote Bell it. Boggs, mm-hmm. and um, and she's actually reading it. I was reading it this morning, 
like jog help jog my memory on like my own experience. And I think it's very authentic sound. I mean, it's her own memoir, so obviously it's authentic. But I like the writing, and I think um, it's a good um, sort of group of essays on her own experience and and, and some interesting insights into nature mm-hmm. and. Um, Infertility is a infertility is a natural phenomenon as much as fertility is natural. That was helpful. Okay, the art of waiting. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Thanks. We'll Thank put it up so in the show notes, everybody. So thanks again, Anna. Thanks, Whitney. Thank you so much, Anna, for sharing yourself and sharing your story, and uh, we very much do appreciate it. Yeah. All right, Drew. Let's do our picks for person, place, or thing. I'll go first. Um, I'm going to recommend the show Catastrophe. It is on Amazon Prime. Um, so if you don't have Amazon Prime, steal someone's password because it's amazing. It's totally worth it. There's two seasons out there. The first season deals with the couple being pregnant and really not giving anything away. And the second season is about early parenthood. Uh, it is so, so... is the child the catastrophe? No. Nah. Okay. No. Nah. just... <laughs> Kind of. Well, kind of, but no. Uh, it's it's just, it's really funny, uh, and it is just so um, affirming. Like, it is, they, they really nail everything about pregnancy, at least in my experience. Pregnancy and nursing and marriage, when you have two small kids and no time to talk. Um, and, you know, it, it really hits home. It's so funny. All right. Yeah. So my thing is the dance party um, part. So my kids were exhausted, and it, it's the dance party that you have. Oh, okay. So my, my kids were exhausted and tired as we were leaving Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and, you know, they had a long day. We had a long, I mean, for them, drive back, right? And uh, they asked if we could listen to the pop radio station, and it was a nice day, so like just turning on the station led to uh, moving to the music a little bit, turned to cranking the volume, rolling down the windows. Like we were very goofy, very silly. Um, and as much as I'm like silly, uh, probably more than the average guy, uh, and you know, in different places in life, like I usually don't like go like all the way like full out silly. And we were just goofy, like we were singing along and shaking our heads and you know doing dances in in our car seats. And uh, it was great. the The kids absolutely loved it. It burned out the rest of their energy. Right. And when it was time, it's like, okay, now Dad's gonna listen to NPR and you're gonna be quiet. And they're like, okay. And then like. <laughs> Bam, they fell asleep. <laughs> oh, yeah, good so strategy there. Yeah. It, when usually I don't believe in the tire them out strategy because yeah. when you're tired, you don't have self-control and then right. there's screaming matches and all that stuff. Um, but it worked this time and we had a whole bunch of fun singing and dancing. And um, so, yeah, that's my thing. Have that's a dance great. party with your kids. I it makes it. the trips more fun. Yeah. And it's fun for them to see you be goofy. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. Cool. I like it. All right, so this has been the Just a Phase podcast. Uh, Whitney is our producer and our writer and our everything else. And our music comes from Spinning Merkaba. Oh, geez, I forgot the name of the song. <laughs> we don't have notes today. Woo Yeah Mix something. <laughs> it's the Woo Yeah Mix of Elect... 
electronica. Just check out. Shoot, listen check to out everything the, from Spinning Merkaba. Show, show notes. <laughs> yeah, I posted. I posted a video. You can listen to the whole song now if you want. I did. On our just, a, you did listen to the whole song. Yeah, yeah. Oh it's yeah. It's not so check, bad. Check out our Facebook page, Just a Phase Podcast. We're on Instagram under the same name. Um, we're not working with notes today, people. So I'm sure nobody can tell. <laughs> All right, sure. Have a good couple weeks. You too. Bye.